Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, One thing that didn't show up in my bio, I come from uh, my religious background, Southern Baptist on one side of the family and Pentecostal on the other. So if you could do me a favor and react every now and then, that does me a lot of good. It lets me know you're out there. If I ask a question, you can answer it. That'll be good. Um, There's also a little Presbyterian in me, and so in a minute I'll ask you to stand while we read something. But it's confusing, but um, I appreciate it. It's been such a blessing to be with this church. Um, I'm thankful for Olivia and Jeremy, who have hosted me for Accelerate, and for your pastor Nathan, uh, for um, giving me the pulpit today. It's a real honor to be with you, and uh, I'm really encouraged for what I've seen here. So thank you so much for your hospitality. This weekend at Accelerate, we were talking about how our cultural and even our personal biases and experiences uh, create assumptions that shape how we perceive the world and each other and especially the scriptures and how those perceptions then can influence our interpretation. They create a filter that makes us see things in different ways. And so this morning, we're going to focus on a passage that will be familiar to a lot of you. Um, It's a story about Jesus feeding uh, a lot of people, essentially with the contents of a small lunchbox. And it's a good illustration of how um, the expectations we have and the filter that we view Jesus through affects how we interpret who he is and what he's doing. And so we'll look at two wrong ways to look at Jesus that I think we'll all relate to, and then a better way that John gives us uh, and to understand what Jesus is about. So would you stand with me, please, while we read this passage from John 6? That's the Presbyterian coming out. <laughs> Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they, had, they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you would illuminate by your Holy Spirit a clear vision of your Son so that we can all follow him more faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. All right, let's get a little bit of context to ramp up uh, before we get into our passage. We're picking up in John 6. I understand you've been in a sermon series on John, so you'll know some of the things that have happened prior to here. This is just a little refresher. In the previous chapters, Jesus has spoken to a Samaritan woman at a well about living water. He's healed the son of a royal official. In chapter 5, he healed a man who had been laying beside the pool of Bethesda for some time. And now he's headed across the Sea of Galilee to get some distance from the crowds. We may call this in the 21st century, this is a self-care moment. Jesus is trying to get away and because he's under a lot of pressure. It's not entirely clear how much time has passed since chapter 5. It says sometime after this. But we know that Jesus is feeling the weight of a lot of things. First of all, the religious leaders are now trying to kill him. The masses, the crowds have seen what he can do and they want more miracles from him. And what Jesus wants to do is pull away with his disciples and help them process what they've seen so that they can understand what he's up to. And so he and his friends get in a boat. They sail across the lake. They go up onto a mountain to have some time alone. And off in the distance, Jesus sees crowds, multitudes coming up to find him, right? They can't find a place to escape the crowds. The text tells us that it's getting late, it's approaching dinner time, and then it tosses in this little detail that may, sing, may seem insignificant to many of us. It says that the Jewish festival of Passover was near. It's kind, it feels like an afterthought, it feels like an interruption. It's the kind of detail that many of us can miss because most of us don't make a big deal out of the Jewish Passover festival. And so it, we can wonder why it's there, but the truth is this is a kind of detail that's easy for us to hurry past, but it's actually the key that unlocks everything that's happening in the story, knowing that the Jewish Passover is near. The reason for this is that Passover was a celebration for Israel of their independence, essentially, from Egypt. It's this great act of God to deliver them out of slavery, chapter 12, and then it includes another kind of series of events uh, that includes the giving of the law and other things that happen in the wilderness. Ancient sources tell us that Jerusalem had a population of about 600,000 people during the lifetime of Jesus, but in the period between Passover and Pentecost, the population could swell to up to 2 million. It's more than triple the normal population because Jewish pilgrims from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the holidays and would stay from Passover to Pentecost. I say all that to say that if the narrator tells us that the festival of the Passover is near, that means that it's on everyone's mind, right? It's a shared sort of cultural moment. It's not going to escape anybody's grasp. It's not like your anniversary or like my sister's birthday that every year I think, oh no, that's today or worse, that was yesterday, right? So that happens too. The point is, this is not that kind of event. It's not just a thing that you have circled on your private calendar. It's something that everyone in town, everyone in Galilee would have been talking about, preparing for, etc. So even though we might have missed it, the people who are headed to that mountain to hear Jesus would have had Passover on their minds. They would have been making preparations. They would have been buying food. They would have been preparing for guests. 
And so it's important for us to have this image in the back of our minds that while they're going out to see Jesus on the mountainside, the event of Passover is associated with the human figure, Moses, who did remarkable things by God's power. Through Moses, God performed a series of miracles that resulted in Pharaoh releasing the people from Egypt. Through Moses, God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk across. Through Moses, God closed the sea so the Egyptian army, the world's largest superpower at the time, was drowned in the water. Through Moses, God gave his people the law on a mountainside in the desert. And through Moses, God provided food and water for those same people in the wilderness when they didn't have anything to eat. So the miracles that God performed through Moses validated his leadership, and it proved that God was um, at work. It says in Exodus 14, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had done against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and they believed in his servant Moses. So Moses is Israel's supreme human hero associated with Passover. And John wants us, when we look at what Jesus is doing, to think about Moses in the back of our minds. Or to put it another way, he wants Moses to be the lens that we look through when we interpret what Jesus is doing. There's a couple of clues in the book of John. You probably have talked about this in your series that John wants us to think about Jesus and Moses together a lot. He says at the very beginning of the book in John 1, that the law was given through Moses, grace and peace comes through Jesus. He says in the chapter right before this, if you had believed Moses, then you would believe me because Moses wrote about me, right? So Moses is the context making sense of what Jesus is doing. The events of Passover that are in the back of the people's minds are going to be the, the right way to interpret what Jesus is doing. So you and I and the disciples and the crowds will understand Jesus only if we read him through the lens of Moses. If we don't read him through Moses, though, we will read him through some other lens. And that's exactly what happens in our story here. We're going to about, talk about two ways that the people present interpreted Jesus in the wrong way. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is this. The disciples view Jesus through the lens of low expectation. So let's get back to our story. Jesus and his friends are up on the mountain. It's getting late. Uh, they see a crowd coming. The passage tells us that it's 5,000 people. In parentheses, it tells us 5,000 men. So if the men also have spouses and children, it could be 20,000 people. It's a lot of people who have come out to see Jesus. They're up on the mountain. They have no provisions, certainly not for a crowd that size. Jesus sees them coming. And the way I picture it, he nudges Philip and says, hey, here comes a bunch of people. Where will we buy bread for all of these people to eat. The text tells us that it's a test. Jesus already has something in mind. We should know that it's a test regardless because it's an absolutely ridiculous question. It's a question that has no answer that is not ridiculous. So can you imagine if Philip had said, I know just the thing. I saw a little place down the hill as we were walking by. We can just pop down there and grab 20,000 loaves of bread. No problem, right? 
Can you imagine the transaction if like Jonah the baker and Bar Jonah, his son, are like sweeping the floor and the apostles come in and say, hey, we need 20,000 loaves of bread. And they're like, great. Is that for here to go? Like the whole scenario is ridiculous, right? So the question, where should we bribe bread for these people to eat, is a ridiculous question. The answer obviously is nowhere. So why does Jesus ask it? As you'll see in your upcoming series, Jesus likes to ask questions, and he asks a lot of questions in the Gospel of John. So here's just sort of a quick run-up of a few that he's asked so far. He's asked someone, what do you seek? He has asked his disciples, do you believe just because I saw you under the fig tree? He says to a religious leader, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And he said to a person who, who was sick and needed healing, do you wish to get well? Why does he ask these questions? Jesus' questions are always designed to help someone see what they're not seeing. Jesus' questions are a call to dig deep. And in this case, it's a call to put on the lens of Moses and pay attention. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, guys, where will we get enough bread to eat? Think about a time in our past when a leader and his people were out in the wilderness on a mountain and they needed something to eat, where did they get it? Okay? Where shall they, where shall we buy bread? What I love about the reaction here is Philip is not having it. He's hangry. He's not interested in lessons. He's not interested in lenses. And he responds to Jesus exasperated. It would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each person to have one bite. He gets real practical. Half a year's salary, we're talking about appetizers. And you're asking, where are we getting enough bread for all these people to eat? And so he makes the, you know, besides the logistics of preparing, he said, even if the guys, you know, down the hill can make 20,000 loaves of bread, we couldn't afford to buy it anyway. So you're asking the wrong question. There's, what you're asking is impossible. I'm not having it fill up out, right? So Andrew... Philip fails the test. Andrew chimes in with slightly more confidence. He said, well, we have some stuff here. His qualifiers are interesting. He says, we have some small loaves of bread and we have some small fish. And then he adds, but how far will they go among so many? Right? Andrew also fails the test. They fail to read Jesus through Moses. They fail to realize that they're experiencing a similar kind of thing to a story that they've heard before. And they can only see Jesus through their own experience of scarcity and want. They can only see Jesus through their own low expectations. Now, I do this all the time, if I'm honest. I'm not going to ask you for a call and response here, but I wonder if you do this sometimes as well. That Jesus is asking you, hey, how are we going to meet this great need in the world? And instead of responding in faith, we respond with some sort of like logistical qualification. Like, that's an interesting question, Jesus. But the thing is, I have student loans, right? So you're asking the wrong question. And Jesus says, how are you going to give these people something to eat? And we're thinking, no, the real question is, when am I going to meet somebody and settle down so I can start my life? 
Or what if my kids don't get into the right school? Or what if I'm stuck in this job forever? You're out here talking about giving all the people something to eat, and I'm just wondering, how am I going to meet the most basic fundamental needs that I have right now, right? Does anybody do that? Sometimes we're too pious to like ask these questions directly out loud, so we kind of make them about our own limitations, and we'll say, well, sure, but my ministry is so small, and we don't have a lot of resources, so we're not going to be able to do that. Or I'm not very talented, actually. I don't like to speak in front of people, or I don't have, you know, I'm not gregarious, whatever it is. And so instead of putting it off on God, I don't think you can do that. We, we push it off on ourselves and say, I don't have what it takes. But even that's a reflection of what we expect from Jesus, isn't it? An ex, it's a, a sign that we have low expectations. I think these low expectations come from different sources. Sometimes it's disappointment that you really hoped that Jesus would show up and do something for you at some point, and he didn't do it. And so the next time you pray, you pray a little more conservatively, right? You say, instead of Jesus giveth the victory, you say, Jesus, if it be your will, and if you don't mind, and maybe, you know what, actually, never mind, just... Help me to accept your will in this situation, right? Like we start to scale back our expectations of Jesus. Sometimes we're trained to do this. Our, our religious upbringing gives us low expectations and gives us sort of a practical take on the gospel and on what Jesus can do. In any case, if we're reading through a lens of low expectations, it's like we're looking at Jesus through the wrong end of a telescope, and instead of him getting bigger and closer, he's getting smaller and further away, right? And that's what the apostles do. They look at him through the lens of low expectations. Now, the great thing about this story is that the, low, the, the disciples' low expectations don't affect Jesus' plan, and they don't have any impact on what he's about to do. So he just kind of rushes them off and says, have everybody sit down. And everybody sits down, and he takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he starts breaking it, and he starts handing it out. And not only do they get the one bite that Philip was concerned about, they eat until they can't move, right? He fills them to the rafters. And when he's done, he's got leftovers, because he's not doing a small miracle, he's doing a big miracle, and Jesus doesn't do enough. He does more than enough, right? And so the people are full, and they... Um, know a miracle. They, they weren't expecting a, a miracle before it happened, but they recognize a miracle in retrospect. And they say, wow, something amazing has happened. Now that my tummy is full, I'm thinking clearly, this is the prophet, surely, who is sent from God to come into the world. And what this tells me is that the people present, the crowds, are actually now reading Jesus through some biblical lens. They're reading him through the Old Testament. He is the prophet that has come into the world. But at the very end, it says Jesus knew that they wanted to make him king by force, which I think is a really interesting political process, right? Sometimes I think the people who want at least, maybe the more qualified to do it, maybe that's a good policy and we should try it. Anyway, they want to make Jesus the king, and they're going to be willing to do it by force. And so he slips away um, to get by himself again. What does this tell me? It tells us that Jesus, that they are looking at Jesus through some sort of biblical lens, but instead of seeing him through the lens of Moses, they're seeing him through the lens of someone like Saul or David, a king, a military uh, leader. That's what they want. And in their defense, it's a great idea to make Jesus king, because what have they seen him do in pretty recent history? They've seen him heal people who are lame, and they've seen him create food basically out of thin air in the wilderness. 
So who better to lead an army than somebody who can fix broken bodies and fill empty stomachs and just keep sending troops back into battle, right? It's a great idea. But the problem is, a king's main job at the time was to win battles, and all the Israelites want is to defeat their enemies. They're occupied by the Romans. They have not been free for 1,500 years, right? And they want God to act. They want a leader who will overthrow the Romans and lead the nation to a military victory, and Jesus looks like their man. The problem is the crowd is making the same mistake the disciples made. They aren't reading him through Moses. Instead, I would say this is point two, they're reading them uh, him through the lens of their own agenda. They have a political, social ambition. They want to be free, and they see a man who can make it happen, and that's all they can see. And they say, let's make him king. Again, I'll ask you this rhetorical question. Do you ever do this with Jesus? Do you ever look at Jesus as the thing that can help you achieve the thing that you've been wanting to achieve? If the lens of low expectations puts uh, too little confidence in Jesus, I think this lens of our agenda puts too much confidence on ourselves. It makes us, it, it seems to assume that we know exactly what we need, and Jesus is our genie in the bottle who's going to grant us our wishes. We want to get married, it's Jesus' job to find us a spouse. We want to start a new business, it's Jesus' job to bring in the prophets. We want to win back the House or the Senate. It's Jesus' job to get the right people on the ballot, right? And a lot of these ambitions are good. Israel's desire to be free from Rome was good. It's the kind of things many of, the, many of our agenda items are things that the Bible says a lot about, like justice and righteousness for the poor and the powerless, or celebration of life, the sanctity of life, the, 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 the goodness of the family, but if all we see when we look at Jesus is somebody who can fulfill our desires and our needs, then we're still reading him through the wrong lens. And just like the lens of low expectations, it's like looking at Jesus through the wrong end of a telescope and Jesus gets smaller and further away. Because when he doesn't do what we want, what do we do with him? We brush him aside. He didn't come through for me. I'll find another way to get there. All right. So we need to be aware. <laughs> All of this is to say we need to be aware of the lenses that we wear when we look at Jesus. We need to be aware of how we're interpreting what he's about and what he wants to do. The challenge with a lens is that it's something you look through. It's not something you look at. And so it's hard to know what your lenses are. If somebody doesn't point them out, right? Sometimes people try to point out things that you can't see, and instead of being grateful, we're annoyed, right? And so a fairly recent example of this is uh, my, I have a swimsuit that I've had for like 18 years, and uh, it is very comfortable at this point. Um, I've loved it all of those 18 years, and for all of those 18 years, my wife has said, that is an old man's swimsuit. And I said, it couldn't possibly be, because it's got these cargo pockets, and it's got this big, long drawstring, and it's fantastic. And she's like, whatever. So she is a patient woman. I wear it every year. This last summer, we were at the beach, and I'm standing in the surf watching my kids play, and I kind of look up and down the water's edge, and I see all these old men wearing my swimsuit. <laughs> and I think, oh no, she's been right all along. Which is the case 
in more than just the swimsuit. But at that moment, I saw something she had seen for a long time, and now I see it, and I can't unsee it, right? And that's kind of how our lenses work. Once we're aware of how we're viewing Jesus wrongly, we can make corrections. And so here's a quick test to know if you're looking at Jesus through the wrong lens, okay? If the Jesus you're looking at always affirms your biases and always reinforces your preferences and always comforts you and never confronts you, then you are looking at Jesus through the wrong lens. At the same time, if the Jesus you're looking at always shames you and always makes you feel dirty and small and always confronts you but never comforts you, then you are looking at Jesus through the wrong lens. And I think the odds are good that both of us, all of us, look at Jesus through both of those lenses at some time, right? So what's the better way? John tells us that we should look at Jesus here through the lens of Moses. So let's go back for a second to Moses, to Exodus. What will we see? The Passover meal happens in Exodus 12. Liberation comes in Exodus 14. And then the people are thirsty, so God gives him them water to drink in the wilderness, miraculously. And then in Exodus 16, he provides for them meat and bread. And Moses tells the people there, here's how you should interpret this gift, this miracle. He says in, in Exodus 16, At the evening, with the gift of the meat, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the, the land of Egypt. In the morning, with the gift of the bread you will see the glory of the Lord. And so the meat and the bread are signs of God's salvation and glory. And in Exodus, God gives the people meat and bread through Moses. But here in John, Jesus gives the people meat and bread all by himself. So Jesus is not just a prophet sent by God to fulfill a promise. He's not just a king who can deliver his people from bondage. He is God himself who can do things only God can do and who by doing those things is proving that he is greater even than this hero Moses, right? That's what this lens can help us see. That's how we're supposed to see him. If you missed that in your previous readings of John, don't feel bad, because the apostles missed it too. Sometimes we like to think, those guys had it made. They walked around with Jesus all the time. They got to hear it firsthand. They got to ask questions. They must have known it all. That's false. They knew almost nothing. And that's encouraging to me, because I also know almost nothing. Later in this very same chapter, the apostles asked Jesus, this is in chapter 6, I think around verse 33, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus says to them, all you have to do is believe in me. That's how you do the work. That's how you're empowered to do the work that God requires. And the disciples respond in the most astonishing way. Here's what they say. They say, what sign will you give us that we can see it and then believe you? What will you do? And here's the example they give. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's how we knew that God was with us, because he gave meat and bread from heaven. And so Jesus, in the rest of the chapter, makes it real plain. And he says, look, guys, 
I'm the water in the wilderness. Whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. I'm the gift of heavenly meat and bread. Whoever eats from me will have eternal life. They're slow to understand this, but a year later, it becomes clearer. The next time in John's gospel, when he says that the time of the festival of Passover is near, is when Jesus gathers his disciples for the Last Supper. And a little bit later, he's crucified. And three days later, he's raised from the dead. And it's finally at that point that that the, the apostles will finally see Jesus through Moses. And they will recognize that Jesus doesn't remind them of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. That Jesus doesn't give the bread and living water from heaven. He is the bread from heaven, and he is the fountain that never runs dry. That Jesus doesn't just keep the law. He is the wisdom of God. That he isn't just a prophet sent by God to proclaim a promise or fulfill a promise. He is that thing that has been promised all this time. And Jesus isn't just a human or just who can advise you on some of your challenges or a genie in a bottle who can wish, grant you all your wishes. He's the all-powerful and ever-present God of history, and he's asking you, join me in my mission. Just believe. I find it really interesting that at the end of John's gospel, Jesus and one of his disciples in this whole story by talking about feeding people again. So if you uh, were a little headed in the sermon series, but you'll, you've heard it and you'll hear it again soon. Peter denies Jesus. Jesus reinstates him during a breakfast on the shore of the lake. And Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter answers him three times, you know I do. Yes, you know I do. And Jesus says to him three times, feed my sheep. And I have to think that in the back of Peter's mind, he's remembering this time on a mountain when Jesus looks at all these people with all this great need who are coming to him for healing, coming to him for words of life, and remembering that Jesus asked, where will we find bread to feed all these people? And now he knows that the answer is in Jesus. And all I have to offer them is Jesus. But what comes first? What comes first is that we have to see that Jesus is the bread of life and the living water. And once we do that, we'll be eager to point others to him. I hope that can be true for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for your patience with us when we are slow to understand. We thank you that our salvation and that your blessing does not depend on our uh, understanding everything, but that you ask us just to believe. So we ask that you would help us to see you more clearly um, so we can follow you more faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. Um, yeah, thank you for that rich insight. And I, I just I love the paradox between sort of low expectations, but then when they finally do have them, it's expectations based on themselves. Mm. Really, really rich stuff. So thank you for that. Thank you. Just a couple of minutes to interact with Brandon on some things, uh, ask him some questions. Again, we had a gathering here yesterday morning, which was really rich, very powerful for all of us. Um, 
The whole weekend has been about being aware of our cultural lenses, the lenses that we look through. And I think this was actually another Accelerate speaker a couple years ago that we've, at least I've repeated pretty often, it's his, not mine. He says, scripture is not written to us, but for us. And it is written for us, but it's not written directly to us. What are some of the mistakes that we make when we simply say, oh, like it's written to us? Uh, what, what, what are some of the challenges that we face? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think when something is written to me, I don't give a whole lot of thought about any other factors that could determine what it means, right? I assume that whatever I uh, instinctively understand the meaning to me, and that's what, it, that's what it means because this was written directly to me. But we know when we read... Um, the letters of Paul that were reading his mail that he sent to people in another city in a particular church who were dealing with particular things. And so when he addresses issues, he's writing to them without having to explain himself a whole lot because they can share certain assumptions. But whatever assumptions they're sharing would be different than the assumptions I have. And so if I read it as directly for me and or directly to me, then I might forget that it's relevant for me, but I wasn't the first audience. And so I need to take another step to unpack what this meant yeah. then so then I can understand what it means now. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, kind of related to that a little bit, uh, particularly during the pandemic, uh, kind of conversation has escalated a bit regarding the end times. Yeah. Are we in the end times? What do the end times look like? Uh, what's about revelation? How is that fulfilled? Um, and, and a lot of that does relate to feeling like it was written to us. Yeah. How does our mindset about the end times, about revelation, and by the way, uh, we are at a, as a church are planning on diving into revelation in the fall yeah. and then continuing that through actually the spring of 2023. Oh, that's great. So yeah. we're going to take, take a dive into that. Um, what are some of the mistakes particularly that come hmm. from looking at revelation through that lens? Yeah. Great. Well, I acknowledged yesterday that I grew up in a, in a church that was very fixated on the end times. And between Sunday school classes and books and movies and other things, I have kind of like post-traumatic stress about the book of <laughs> Revelation. So um, it's been a while since I visited myself, you know, but the, uh, I think the, the kind of two mistakes when we think of it as written to us is that it, it makes all of the events described, it makes them all future events. So it means that we can't imagine that any of the things that are happening in Revelation have, have happened or that they have been relevant to Christians in other times and places before now, right? So if they're all future events that haven't happened yet, then they won't be much comfort to churches in parts of the world who are experiencing persecution now because this isn't about them. It's about something that happens in the future. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that sort of long future orientation is a mistake that we make. And I also think that we do have a tendency to think it's future oriented uh, and we'll know when it started because it will start happening to us. So it's when the North America or European church begins to feel some of the things that are happening, that's when the end is coming. So I find it interesting and kind of tragic that like, the things that are happening in Ukraine, that's when I heard people talking about, oh, this is, is this the end times? Well, the same exact things happened in Syria. And I don't remember us asking, is that the end? But for some reason, when it affects the West, 
when it's about us, then we begin to interpret those signs as now yeah. they're beginning to happen. And I think that's a real mistake. Really good stuff. Yeah. Are you like free next fall? To like <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm booked all of those Sundays. Has it happened? So. <laughs> um, we mentioned a couple of times that, that scripture places a lot of priority on the plural you. Yeah. And we don't have a English word that differentiates between the singular you and the plural you. Yeah. And so certainly our, our relationship with God is personal. Um, but sometimes we almost take the plural you as being about modern day, you know, North American, United States citizens, followers right. of Christ. Yeah. Rather than the plural you being like all of God's people for all of God's time. Yeah. Tell us about the richness, the importance uh, of, of expanding our perspective from kind of our tendency to be very individualized North Americans yeah. Yeah. to seeing a more global community of Christ followers. That's great. Yeah, you're exactly right. So I do, I'll make a plug for the South here. We tried to give you the gift of y'all, um, which is a plural you, uh, and it can even be possessive, y'alls, which is great, uh, and actually works a lot in the Bible. Um, but So we tried, but... Um, I think you're right that we have a hard time linguistically anytime we see a you when we read, we read it as you singular, and we often read it as me. So if I read you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, I think I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we tend to not read it collectively. When we do re read collectively, like about God's people or about the nation, we have a tendency to equate, uh, American Christians have a tendency to equate American Christians with Israel. So whatever promises are made to that nation now somehow apply to this nation. Uh, and there are historical reasons for that. A lot of, you know, the pilgrims use that kind of language about coming from Europe to North America as an exodus. And so there's a lot of, lot of baggage, a lot of history. But I think the problem with it is one of the New Testament's favorite descriptors of Christians is exile, who is somebody that lives in a country that they're not a, a citizen of. And uh, I think American Christians are particularly bad about using that l language of exile to apply to us in America. Somehow we feel like this is home, when in fact I think the scriptures tell us that no earthly place or government is home for Christians. And so when we make those promises that apply to Israel, apply it to America and not to the church, which is an exile all over, then we really rob Christians in Africa and Asia and Latin America and every place else of those promises because they're meant for all of us together, not yeah. for our national boundaries exclusively. Yeah. You mentioned something at the nine o'clock service as well that was really helpful to me as also, is that sometimes we see ourselves as being the source of God's blessing. And yeah. just talk to that a little sure, bit. Sure, yeah. So I think another thing that comes from if we're the, the special recipients of God's blessing as God's special people in America, then I think we extrapolate from that. Then our job is to be a blessing to others and to go and to give and to resource and to teach. And while I don't want to discourage us from being generous, I do think that can create a posture that, that by, whereby we forget that we also have a lot to receive and a lot to learn from Christians all over the world, right? So I think I gave the example this morning. I, th I think the missionary sending has shift so that shifted. So now that there are more African missionaries sent from Africa to Europe than, or to the West 
than from the West to Africa. And there are more missionaries sent from Asia to the West than from the West to Asia. So we're in a situation now where we may have historically had the most resources and the most access or whatever, but we now sit in a place where we have a lot to receive from other Christians, yeah. other places. And if we think of ourselves as like the holder of the blessing, then we, we can't receive it yeah. from other people. Yeah. It just strikes me. We're the mission field yeah, as right. well as the missionaries. Yeah, like right. we live on a mission field. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's so powerful. The rest of the world is really concerned about us, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe they should be. <laughs> um, you've been so helpful in helping us to just navigate maybe the, the, the land between um, just a really strong sense of skepticism in our, our culture that is very kind of like deconstruction, like every person is so blinded by culture, there is no truth, yeah. versus sort of the, you know, we know it all, modernistic, like tell me tell you exactly how truth works. Yeah. Um, how can we be people of both confidence in truth, mm -hmm. but also humble yeah. in saying, yeah, we don't know it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's the question. I think that's, um, I think that, I think of the example of people, uh, make the joke that like when you're finished with college, you think, you know, some things and then you go to grad school and you think, you know, mm -hmm. everything. And then you do a PhD and realize you don't know anything at all. And I think, uh, Western Christianity has kind of been stuck in that grad student stage where we kind of think we have things pretty well figured out. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's not confidence uh, it, it's, it's confusing confidence that the scriptures are true with confidence that my interpretation is correct. And so I think we need to separate that the Bible can be completely true, infallible, trustworthy, etc. But our interpretations can be limited and faulty and incomplete. Right. And the more I study and the more I engage the rest of the world, especially when you encounter Christians who have such a vastly different cultural world, worldview that they're asking very different questions when they read the Bible. It makes me less and less confident about my own uh, opinions, but more and more confident that God's word is true. And so I think that's the, the, the emphasis needs to be on our, we don't reduce the confidence in God's word just because we reduce the confidence in ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we can't actually access God's word at any deeper level until we reduce our confidence in ourselves and can receive instruction from other people. Just as an example, and we maybe have just a minute or two left, so I didn't ask you this at nine o'clock. Um, I remember, I think it's in the first chapter of your book, you referenced Luke chapter 15 mm, yeah. and the story of the, the prodigal. Yeah, yeah. And you use an illustration there of, of maybe a cultural blindness that we have to that story. Right. Can you mind just fleshing yeah. that out? Because I, I thought that, that story. was, yeah. like, I, I love that insight. And I was like, wow, I never thought about that. Right. Yeah, good. So there, um, there's a New Testament scholar named uh, Mark Allen Powell, and he conducted an experiment at a seminary in the U.S., where he asked students to pair off and read the story of the prodigal son and then close their Bible and repeat the story back to each other as faithfully as they could, as completely as they could. And what he noticed is when they gave that account, none of his students mentioned the famine in the story, which is the turning point where the prodigal who has left loses everything. There's a famine in the land. And so then he goes back to his father. 
He thought, well, that's fascinating. So he tries the experiment, larger sample, same like Western, you know, seminary context. I think it's like 100 people or a couple hundred people. And it's like a single digit percentage, the number of people who recognize the famine in that story. They just skip over it, like we talked about this morning with the Passover, because it feels like an irrelevant piece of information, right? Uh, he had the opportunity to do uh, this, to teach in Russia sometime later, and he, this was, I want to say in the late 80s or early 90s, there's still a sort of cultural memory of famine and, uh, and other things. So he does the experiment there, and the vast majority of the people who participate in the activity mention the famine. And so his observation is where you're reading the story kind of determines what details you think are relevant and which details you dismiss as irrelevant. The Bible itself is exactly the same in both places, right? The word is always there, but one group misses it and one group emphasizes it. And so I think that's an example for me of why we, uh, as much as we can, need to be reading together because it's possible even with our own, like even if you and I share a culture, Certain things are going to jump yeah. out at you, and other things are going to jump out at me. And if we're able to talk about yeah. those together, it gives us a bigger view of the scriptures yeah. together. I love that. It's just really concrete and makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Um, uh, you are with City to City, uh, yeah. which is an, uh, kind of a ministry established by Tim Keller in Manhattan. And by the way, Tim Keller is one of my heroes. And so, like, you've shaken Tim's hand. So I just, like, want to shake your hand. Like, like, this is the closest I get to shaking Tim's hand. Right. So, I haven't know. washed it in five years. So you're good. Yeah. Uh, what I love about City to City is that they're so strategic in reaching the major city, global cities in the world, yeah. as, as Tim has been with New York City and Manhattan. Yeah. So just give us a little bit of perspective that you see, seeing just a vast landscape of what God is doing in major cities. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, it helps to see what you see that we just aren't in a position to see is how yeah. God is working, what he's doing, That's the right. movement of God across the world. Yeah. Well, the very short version is that the gospel of Jesus is spreading globally very, very fast. It's sort of like the last line, the last word in the book of Acts is unhindered, right? And I think that's what's happening globally is the gospel is growing unhindered. It is not growing without opposition. And so in places like China and in India and in uh, places in South Asia, there is active state resistance to uh, the Christian church, and it's growing nonetheless, right? And so I think it's it's inspiring, it's humbling to be witness to and, and, and part of that as it's going on. Um, I think one of the things that I uh, hope to learn from our friends around the world is that there is a strong sense of peace, and I, I, I think of it as non-anxious witness from the global church, mm-hmm that we spend a lot of times wringing our hands about how bad things are getting and do we have the right strategy and do we have enough resources? And, and I just sense a, the, in a parts of the world where they don't have the resources and they don't have the luxury of strategy, they're not really wringing their hands. They're just celebrating that God is doing extraordinary things and they hope that they're faithful mm. in the moment to keep it going, right? And so I, I'm, I'm humbled and encouraged by this sort of peaceful, non-anxious, hopeful, presence of, of the global body of Christ 
And I think that they have a lot to share with us. And so when I get discouraged about the state of things in America and the Twitter feed and the whatever else, it's just, it's such an encouragement to be able to see what God is doing other places and kind of pull me out of that narrow yeah. perspective. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 ask all of us to stand together. And Brandon, if you could give us maybe just a, a final challenge to like live deeply in God's word yeah. and his truth, to be humble, to be confident. And then if you could pray that over our congregation, that would be awesome. Yeah. 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 So I think um, as a kind of a final word, I think the more I, the, the, the more time I spend in the scriptures, the more frequently I see how um, fallible and incomplete humans are and how much I need help in seeing things clearly. And so I would um, hope for your congregation, for anyone who can hear this, that we would be humble to receive correction and rebuke and, you know, and help support from all quarters. Sometimes I think God calls us to repentance through the church. I think sometimes he calls us to repentance through the world and that the world sees things that we have missed and instead of dismissing it as hysteria, we could receive it and say, you know what, you're right, I'm guilty of some things that I hadn't noticed before. And so I hope that we'll be humble to receive that correction wherever it comes from, and then confident that, that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the, the living Jesus will kind of carry us through that when we submit to yeah. that process. Amen. So let me pray. Uh, Father, it is such an encouragement to be able to be here today, and thank you for this uh, congregation and its leadership. I pray for them that you would give them courage, um, and sometimes uh, we think of courage as external. It's what we do to go out there in the world, but it takes a lot of courage to wrestle with hard questions in here and to be uh, vulnerable with each other and, and, and develop the sort of trust that we need to wrestle through questions together. And so I pray for the courage to do that and the courage to be bold and witness in this community and as the church is thinking about how to maximize the opportunities they have and be strategic in their mission, I pray for their guidance, uh, for your guidance in those decisions. We thank you and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 If you could join me in thanking Brandon for being with us again. Well, thank you so much for joining us. When you leave those doors, it's going to be spring. How about that? Our, pr <laughs> Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless. Have a great day.